You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, my name is Doug Mensch, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hey, 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 this is the Epic Marvel Podcast. I'm your host, Curtis Findlay, and today we have an interview with Doug Mensch. If you have been listening to my show the past couple of weeks, then you will have uh, hopefully heard my Master of Kung Fu episodes. I've done two episodes that follow the first volume of the Epic Collection, the Master of Kung Fu Epic Collection. And throughout those episodes, I sprinkled through interview clips from this interview with Doug Mensch, who was the primary writer after Steve Englehart, the creator of the book, left after a few issues. We talk about all sorts of things, including the uh, just the creation or how he came onto the book. We talk about Paul Galassi a lot, and um, we go in a bunch of different directions, and I hope you enjoy this. It's a great companion episode to the two Master of Kung Fu episodes, as well as whenever I get around to doing an episode on the second volume of the Epic Collection, which hopefully will be uh, sooner than later. Uh, we are part of the Thunderquack Podcast Network, and so I encourage you to go check out patreon.com slash thunderquack. Throw us a couple of bucks. It helps offset the costs of keeping this podcast running. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. Just search for Epic Marvel Podcast. And if you search for Epic Collections on Facebook, you might find my Facebook group where it's a ton of people to all talking about Epic Collections and how much we love them. So join the conversation. We'd love to have you. Without further ado, this is my interview with the amazing Doug Mensch. How did you come to take over the book after Steve Englehart left? Uh, well, Roy Thomas asked me if I would do it. He was the, I guess, the editor-in-chief at the time, and... Uh, I said, Roy, you just asked me to do Iron Fist. I don't want to do two martial arts books, but I, I, this, this was not very nice, but I said, I do like Master of Kung Fu more than Iron Fist. And it wasn't <laughs> nice because Roy created Iron Fist. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it, it just popped out before I realized what I was saying, you know. And I said, you know, because... Iron Fist is more like a superhero, you know, and this is more like regular martial arts kind of thing. And I tried to cover it up, mm-hmm. but um, that and that was the that was the truth. Uh, Roy's version, what he's he just loves superheroes, and you know, we'll do a martial arts superheroes. What he, I guess, Gil Kane co-created it with him, maybe. Right. Um, yeah, and um, I loved, you know, reading superhero comics. But I, did, when when it was time to write, it was it was always my least favorite thing to write, even though I loved reading them. So that's why I tended to do a lot of horror stuff, and you know, things like Planet of the Apes and Master of Kung Fu and whatnot. 
And even when I did superheroes, they they tended to be uh, Moon Knight or Batman. You know, didn't have superpowers really. Right. They were costumed heroes, but not superheroes. So um, he said, "All right, uh, you'd rather do Master Kung Fu?" I said, "Yes." And he said, "Okay." And that that's how it started. You know, I I really liked what uh, Engelhart and Starlin had done. On I guess they did like four issues, maybe right. three or four. And at that time, I was, uh, they called us assistant editors, but it was really just glorified proofreaders. And I, I always looked forward, always, it was only a couple of issues, I looked forward to the few new issues of Master Kung Fu that I had to proofread. But that really kind of ruined it. I read, I think, the first two just as a comic book reader, and then I proofread a couple. Um, when you proofread things, they don't make any sense because you can't see the forest for the trees. You're so, you're so bent on, you know, is there the right number of stripes on Captain America's shield or whatever? Okay. I, I, I always tell the story. I was really kind of impressed by what Jerry Conway was doing with Spider-Man when I was back in Chicago as just as a comic book reader. And because I was impressed, I think because I liked Stan Lee's Spider-Man so much, I was afraid when, you know, someone else was going to do it. But it turned out to be quite enjoyable, I thought. And then the first thing when I moved to New York after I said, OK, I'll come to New York, work for Marvel. Here, you got to be a proofreader. Uh, the first thing they gave me to proofread was a Jerry Conway issue of Spider-Man. And I went through the whole thing. I got to the end. It took forever because, you know, uh, you stand there, you sit there with a exacto blade and you scrape off the little ink marks that went past the panel borders. And I mean, you're <laughs> oh, wow. really into the details, man. Yeah. And you got white out and, you know, we would we would fix some of the, the lettering, the misspellings on our own without sending it back to a real letterer to do a full that was only when a whole something was really screwed up you would send it back to get redone okay if it was something that we could possibly do sitting there at our proofreading desk we did it um so i get to the end of it and then go what the hell happened to jerry conway that was terrible you know and I, I i don't even remember i don't even remember what i just read what the hell was this about i don't even know if it made sense i had to read it a second time fast, like reading a regular comic, just to see if this, and then it was like, oh, I see. You know, when you proofread something, you're not reading it at all. You're like inspecting it and, and you know, going over it like a like fixing a car or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's a whole different thing, you know. But anyway, I did very much like the first few issues of Master of Kung Fu. And, uh, yeah, and once I took it over, I always suspected, uh, ah, I see, I think I was wrong, but I thought, I see why Engelhart quit this book, because, you know, you, how, how many times can you do stories about this pacifist walking down the street and getting attacked and forced to get into a fight? He, the last thing <laughs> he wants to do is fight, and he has to fight all the time. Right. This is getting really boring, you know. And I, but I think it turned out he just ha had taken on too much, and something had to give. And for whatever reason, he gave that one up. That would, if I were him, that would have been the last one I would have given up. Hmm. But anyway, 
I think he, he liked, what was he doing? West Coast Avengers or something. He liked something else more and wanted to keep that. And it really started started getting into a rut, I thought. And that's when I decided, well, I'm going to change almost everything I liked about this, you know, and do it a different way so that it makes sense. Try and give Shang-Chi a reason for getting into fights all the time, which is, you know, joining up with uh, British intelligence in opposition to his father's evil assassins, trying to save lives, being a little more proactive, you know, instead of minding his own business and being a pacifist and getting attacked and forced to fight. Right. So that's when uh, Master Kung Fu became more of a sort of a thriller, espionage, or whatever you want to call it. Right. And I, I remember Engelhardt came, he, was, he had moved to California, and he was back in New York on a visit, and he took me aside and he said, listen, I want to tell you, you know, I've been, I've been reading, I've read all of your Master of Kung Fu. This was years worth after he had quit. And he said, I just wanted you to know, it's not at all what I would have done, but it's my favorite comic book. So <laughs> that's good, good, good for you and keep doing it. Nice. And I thought, well, that's nice. Okay. Yeah. The guy who started it likes what I, how I screwed it up on him, but you know, <laughs> he could have stayed on it. Yeah. His choice. Now, when you first started, were you familiar with Fu Manchu and all those characters with the movies or the books? Well, I mean, I, I yeah, I mean, uh, in fact, right before uh, going to New York, you know, I was a, a, a long hair, and people would say a hippie, but there was this uh, movie theater, with a revival theater, where all of we long hairs used to love to go. And one of the things I saw right before moving to New York was uh, the Boris Karloff Fu Manchu movie. Right. So, and I'd already I'd already seen that I think on like Shock Theater or whatever, so, some TV uh, late night movie thing. And uh, I was aware of the pulps, but I had not read any uh, from beginning to end. You know, any of the Sax Romer books or anything. Uh, but I, I was aware, fully aware of who Fu Manchu was and aware of the movies, yeah. Oh, and I'd seen the Christopher Lee movie, you know, Hammer, Fu Manchu. So when you went to write these stories with these characters that kind of already existed, uh, did you have to do much research into the way they acted or stuff, or did you kind of yeah, just take them in yeah. your own direction? Well, both. Uh, uh, you know, things were so hectic back then. I had such a workload. I was doing so much writing. There, were, there wasn't as much time for research as you know would have been ideal. But I did pick up some Fu Manchu paperbacks and try and read. I would read bits of them rather than from cover to cover to get the flavor, the feel, uh, how Fu Manchu spoke, you know, things like that and not necessarily the plots. Just so it, it felt a little real. I did the same thing when I would write uh, Conan. I had already read all of the Robert E. Howard stuff that had been published up till then, but I would always go and read a bit of a Conan short story or a whole short story in that case. That was easy to do uh, rather than a full novel. Just to, just to get the flavor you know, and the feel. Um, so yeah, I did that kind of thing, but 
I didn't feel bound by uh, the, the plots. I liked the fact that it had this uh, pulpy, uh, noir kind of atmosphere to it. And I really like putting things, uh, setting things on the on the fog shrouded docks, you know, <laughs> yeah. with the fog horns going and all of that, and you know, Limehouse and the Chinese the opium haunts and all that kind of stuff. But I also, I knew that Fu Manchu was big trouble, and if I were Chinese, I'd be totally pissed. So I tried to to be as respectful as possible, but how? How far can you go without just saying, well, I refuse to do Fu Manchu, you know? Right. Uh, he's, he's a stereotype, evil, yellow menace, you know? Um, I did have a battle with the colorists and finally got them to stop coloring him yellow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, just color him uh, regular, what you call flesh color. It's the same, you know? Well, but he's, but he's Chinese. And, and I remember I... <laughs> It wasn't that there was a, a Japanese uh, uh, letterer, I think. And I went up to her and I said, I, I held my, my arm up to her arm and I said, you see any difference? Come on. And they, <laughs> they finally, they finally stopped with the yellow crap. Wow. Yeah. I used to call it, it was like banana yellow, you it, know? Yeah, it was, it was really, like really pale. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not based in reality at all. And then, and they did do Shang Chi a little different, but but I liked the different color. Did, you ever notice Conan was a little different? Yep, it was like a little re, a Much little more reddish, red. yeah. like what you would like an American Indian or something. Mm-hmm. And Shang Chi was a little a little more golden than yep. Caucasians. And it's like, well, it's they shouldn't do that, but I kind of like it. I like the fact that he looks a little bit different, and it's a it's an appealing color. It's like soothing to my eye. So I didn't, I didn't fight that. I let it go. Yeah. But I remember reading some of the letter pages where people still were unhappy, like having to address the, the whole skin tone issue oh, in, yeah. in the pages there. Oh, yeah. Yep. I read Bill Wu was a really hardcore Master Kung Fu fan and was Chinese himself. He sent, he sent me uh, audio tapes every once in a while. And I, I started playing this one tape, and I could hear the sound of a train. He said, hello, Doug, this is Bill Wu on the so-and-so express in <laughs> Shenzhen, China, or whatever. Wow. Really? Wow. That was cool, you yeah. know? <laughs> and and then he would launch into, you know, you know, Fu Manchu being a terrible, nasty stereotype. And I, I, well, I would agree with him. Yeah, I didn't pick him. You know, I'm... I'm coming in on this thing. It already exists this way. And it's like, I said, you know, okay, but Chinese people can be villains. I've got a hero who's Chinese. And then I would get the, yeah, but he's half white. (laughs) Jesus, you're right again. But I didn't do that either. And I, yeah, I don't know if anybody noticed, but I never mentioned Shang Chi had a white mother. Yeah, never. Yeah, I just acted like he was Chinese, and that's the end of that. Right. <laughs> Were you familiar with kung fu, like the, the just the whole practice nah, of kung fu? Not, not really. I think I, I think I saw. Um, was there a, a Bruce Lee movie called Fists of Fury? Maybe. Yeah, I think I saw one one Bruce Lee movie at a drive-in, and it was a terrible. 
I don't know if there was a full moon or something, but you could barely see the screen. You know, you could, or they started it too early. It wasn't full dark yet. Right. It was, uh, it was not an enjoyable experience. Let's put it that way. Okay. And I, I, I was not impressed by Bruce Lee until I actually got to see him later. Uh, I guess in Enter the Dragon. Um, that was after Master Kung Fu started, right? Enter the Dragon. Oh, I'm not sure right the date the on same that. Time. Yeah, it probably was around yeah, the same I time. Yeah, I don't know. And I never watched uh, Green Hornet, and I never watched uh, the David Carradine Kung Fu either. Um, so, you know, I met the girl who became my wife and is my wife now, my second wife, uh, right before coming to Chicago, she was the roommate of my friend's sister or something like that. And we were at an outdoor music thing and the, and my friend's sister and her roommate came up and the roommate was Deborah, my future wife. And they said, what are you doing? And I said, Hey, I got steaks at home. Cause I, I was started selling stories. Right. And I had all this money. <laughs> Like, I was a rich long hair all of a sudden. I, w- I started selling stories to the men's magazines. That was incredible. They paid a fortune for yeah. these stupid jerk-off <laughs> stories, you know? Well. Anyway, no, they really did. Uh, like $500 in 1970. Wow. Uh, when when rent was like 60 bucks a month. And I could write a story in an afternoon for 500 bucks. Holy That's moly. amazing, yeah. Right. I, was, I was rich. Anyway, uh, so I said, uh, you, can, you can come over to my place and, uh, if you cook the steaks for us. And talk about chauvinistic, right? <laughs> and, and, Deb- and Deborah and her roommate, my friend's sister, said, okay, we'll come and cook the steaks if you let us watch Kung Fu. And I go, oh, Kung Fu. oh, yeah, I heard about some TV show called Kung Fu. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I have a TV. It's hardly ever on. I just play records all the time. But you, I, it still works, I'm pretty sure. So, yeah, sure, you can watch it. And it was on, but I, even then, the, the day I met my future wife, I didn't pay attention to it. I just <laughs> was eating the steaks. and I, I had great stuff, man. It is great bread and cheese spreads and grapes and cherries and wine and wow. then steaks on the side. Oh man, I was rich. <laughs> <laughs> I felt richer. I felt richer then than I do now. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, just just because it was so, I was living uh, cheap, but with money where I could afford to live like you know upper middle class, yeah, right? Right. And it just, if you live, if you live in cheap with cheap rent and, you know, everything is cheap and you get five times as much money or 10 times as much money, it's like, wow, I can, I can buy steaks. Let's go. <laughs> Wonderful. Wow. Um, wow. That was the day you met your, your future wife. Hey, and then yep. everything went well from there on out. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't like the first episode of Kung Fu. But how long did that last? How many seasons? Oh, I don't know. I yeah, don't know. It was a few seasons. But it was, I, I'm pretty sure it was the first season, and they were already, like, fans of this show. Uh, okay. So it, it, was at least a, it was at least the third or fourth episode, whatever, or fifth episode, I don't know. And they were really into it. And yeah. I wasn't. I didn't <laughs> care. You know, I was aware of it enough. I remember it was on... 
uh, on a TV in a uh, restaurant, you know, like a, you know, today you'd call it a sports bar, I guess, that kind of place. And uh, I remember catching snatches of it enough to where I knew what it was. I had, oh, this that fortune cookie philosophy, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I knew that that's that Engelhart was kind of doing that. Uh, I didn't know if he was doing it real closely, if he was totally ripping it off, or if it was just a little bit like that. I really didn't know. But um, it didn't matter because I I like fortune cookie philosophy. That was the most fun, man. You know, making up those little aphorisms that seem like. Uh, you know, Chinese wisdom, ancient wisdom or whatever, but it's really not. It's just junk that I made up. Right. <laughs> Fooled a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, you know, not not anybody who's into actual Buddhist philosophy or anything or Taoist philosophy, but uh, the, the average comic book reader, you know, it fooled them, that's for sure. Yeah. Well then, what what was it about the the Steve Englehart, Jim Starlin stuff that that you, that really grabbed you? If you weren't into kung fu itself, or like, um, what was it? Well, I I really like Starlin's storytelling, mm-hmm. um, visual storytelling. I liked the uh, the the fortune cookie philosophy that Englehart was doing, and I knew it had some association to that TV show my girlfriend liked. But that's okay, and you know I could. I just what I saw of the Kung Fu show, I did not really like because it's like, wait a minute, that's John Carradine's son. That's a white guy. What are you telling you? He's supposed to be Chinese. Right. And he's tall and he's tall and skinny. He's like he's like the opposite of a of a typical Chinese physique, you know, and his face isn't Chinese. What what the hell is this? But anyway, so I kind of disliked the show. But I like that, like I said, fortune cookie philosophy stuff. And I think the combination of that and the fact that it's not a typical Marvel superhero book, it it just seemed different. You know, there were different things. Conan was different. Master Kung Fu was different. Man-Thing was different. There were a few things that were different. Even though I loved the core, like I said, superhero, Marvel superhero stuff, I love the offbeat stuff even more. And in the 70s, Marvel was really branching out to the kind of the offbeat stuff, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was a big part of that. I did a lot of a lot of the offbeat stuff. I always wonder if you have to run stuff by the Sachs Romer estate when you're working with licensed properties like this. Did they care? I know that Star Wars cared. I, I, I got a Star Wars story, man. Uh, I tell you, people ask me this question all the time, and I've done, okay, I've done the Fu Manchu, I've done James Bond, I've yep. done Godzilla, Shogun Warriors, Planet of the Apes, right. and, you know, a few others. I was never, ever asked to redo anything by anyone, ever. Okay. And as far, I don't even know if they had to get these things approved, Right. But then I, I, you know, I started hearing stuff about uh, George Lucas and his mania over Star Wars and so on. And Dark Horse called and asked me to take over Star Wars. Would you, would you write Star Wars? And I remember telling him, wow, I, that'd make me a hero to my son and all of his little friends, you know. Right, yeah. But I, I ha- I'm going to ask you uh, about certain things I've heard if I agree to do this, am I going to be constantly asked to change things, yada, yada? 
And the editor, he went dead silent for, you know, beat of five at least. And then he said, well, there is a lot of faxing back and forth. And I said, well, in that case, thank you for asking. I'm I'm flattered, but I, that's the last thing I need. I've never had that kind of interference, and it sounds like a nightmare to me, and I'm just not interested. <laughs> so, I mean, everything else, I, I, okay, with James Bond, I know they did run it by uh, Ian Fleming's estate, but nobody ever asked for anything. The reason I know that is one night I, the phone rings and it's uh, uh, what's his name Mike Richards the guy who started Dark Horse is his name Mike Richards I think so yeah, yeah. that's his name right mm-hmm. yeah he called up he said Doug I just got back from London uh, I just had to call you because I met with so and so the guy in charge of Glidrose Ian Fleming's literary estate and this guy told me to tell you that your James Bond Serpent's Tooth is far and away the best James Bond story not written by Ian Fleming. And tell Doug that includes all the movies and all of the pastiche novels and blah, blah, blah. Really? Wow, that's (laughs) a great compliment. Yeah, that's amazing. But... And I don't know if the Plan of the Apes people really even read the stuff. I don't know uh, about the Godzilla stuff. Nobody, nobody ever said anything, and I was never asked to change anything. Well, that's good. That makes your I job mean, way easier then. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would have quit if, you know, it became a constant nightmare. But, with you know, there were ground rules up front. I mean, like when, when we did Godzilla. Okay. We have the rights to Godzilla, but not to anything else. You can't, you can't do Ghidra or Rodan or anything. None of that. Make up your own monsters like that, and I did. You know, and uh, what you know, if, as long as I followed the ground rules, it, apparently they didn't care. With Godzilla, you really uh, infused the entire Marvel universe in that book. And that's very different from the way you approached master of Kung Fu. What was, what was the difference there? Well, well, I never would have chosen Godzilla. Um, and I would have turned it down when it was offered to me, had it not been offered to me personally by Stanley. Okay. And it wasn't an offer. It wasn't an offer. It was a request. Yeah. He said, no, I, would you please do this for me? You know, it was that kind of thing. And I said, Stan, yeah, I, that's not my kind of thing, you know. And and he said, I know. That's why I want you to do it. And then I said, but so you want me to do, I had this reputation of doing more, I think they called it uh, more adult Marvel comics. It appealed to an older reader, supposedly. Right. This is all nonsense, but, but that's what people <laughs> got from it, you know. Yeah. And a lot of people got that. And I said, you know, well, is that, is that why you want me to do Godzilla? And he said, yeah. And I said, but Stan, then you really don't want me because the only way I would do Godzilla is if I could do it totally different and deliberately appeal to very young readers. Oh, okay. They're the Godzilla fans. They are Godzilla fans. I know my kid and all of his friends, they're all so crazy about Godzilla. And that's the way I would want to do it, like those goofy movies where Godzilla is kind of the hero and beating up the bad guy monsters, you know? Yep, yep. 
And Stan, you know, you could see his face like he was disappointed at first, and then he sort of perked up. And the more I talked about it, the more he and he finally said, "You're right. That's the way you should do it. Okay, <laughs> go to it." You know, awesome. like, oh God, what did I talked myself into this. <laughs> Just trying to talk myself out of it, you know. But then I, I'm I'm glad it, it it happened because I got to work with Herb Trimpey, who yeah. was a joy, and and uh, it turned out to be enormous amount of fun. It was like because I was aiming at well, I don't know if it's because, but I was aiming at younger readers, and for some reason that made it like freewheeling, you know. Like I didn't try to impress. You know, oh, okay. I just okay. tried to have fun. Yeah. Just tried to have fun, and it it really became fun. I the guys who wrote uh, Mishkin and somebody else, they did Blue Devil or something. I remember them grabbing me up in the DC offices once, and they said, "Oh man, when you were back at Marvel, we we would get the the batch of the freebies, you know." Every week they would get a you know twenty com- copies of uh, whatever was published that week, and I want you to know the first one we grabbed and we fought over it was always Godzilla. <laughs> you had to read that right away, right away, because it was so breezy and fast reading and fun and and I thought, well, there's another great compliment. Yeah, wow, <laughs> that's amazing. Are you, are you surprised that Kung Fu Master Kung Fu lasted as long as it did? It had a really long run. Yeah, I did it for ten years. Yeah, um, and then, and then you add what, like four months of Engelhart, uh, say ten and a half years. Yeah. Um, am I surprised? I only in retrospect at the time. I'm not sure I even thought about it. I, in fact, I know I didn't think about it. Okay. Um, I I don't know if you're aware, but my workload was like twice as much as the next mo- most prolific writer, you know? Right. I wow. far and away wrote mo- more pages per week, per month than anybody. Uh, and I didn't have time to think about things like that. Okay. Uh, and, beca- and because I was so fast, which and not as fast as people think, I just put in a lot of hours, right? Um, but because I did so much, that's indisputable. Uh, yep. I would get calls from John Verporten or this editor or that editor. Oh my God, so and so screwed up, and we need something by Thursday morning. Can you please do it? Yeah, <laughs> and I would say, No, I got all this other stuff. To do. Oh, come on, you're the only one who could possibly do it. No one else could do it that fast. And I would end up saying okay to that on top of everything else. It was just nuts, just crazy. How did you manage keeping your mind around all of those different storylines? Uh, I don't know. I, all I can tell you is the, the the secret ingredient was that girl who agreed to cook the steaks if she could watch Kung Fu. Because <laughs> when, right after I met her, the phone rings and it's Marv Wolfman and Roy Thomas at Marvel asking me to come work at Marvel. Yeah. My best friend in Chicago at the time was Russ Heath, a great artist. Yeah. And he... It, I, I I said oh, I don't know I really like I'm I'm living like a king here in Chicago I got all these friends and all these girls and whoa it's great and you know and and I'm just I'm just mailing stories to different magazines and play. I was even mailing stories to DC Comics and they were buying them now they were just House of Mystery and House of Secrets and you know the war books right right. Uh, it wasn't, you know, a, a, a main title or anything, but the page rate was the same, and they were buying them, and 
I had no reason to move to New York as far as I could tell. And, you know, Roy said, well, the only way you'll ever write Spider-Man is if you come to New York. I said, well, I love reading Spider-Man, but I don't want to write Spider-Man. Well, any Marvel comic. And then and Russ Heath really got on me. He said, you got to go. What are you, crazy? This is the <laughs> chance of a lifetime. You'll never get it. Oh, you've got to go, you nut. And he just kept it up and kept it up. And I finally told Roy Thompson, I said, look, how how about I come to New York and try you out for two weeks? Very presumptuous, yeah, very he, arrogant. But that, I wasn't I wasn't trying to be arrogant. It was just I didn't know if I could in, uh, could handle living in Manhattan, you know. Uh, and so I went for two weeks and they gave me all this stuff to, to write and and it's like by the end of the two weeks, it was pretty much sure. And I thought, wow, what a shame. I just met this great girl. And now I'll never find out how it goes. And so I told her, I said, look, that's, I'm really sorry, but I guess I'm going to go to New York. And it'd be a shame to to not see how, how this would turn out. And she said, all right, how about I come with you? And if it works out, fine. And if it doesn't, I'll just come back to Chicago and no hard feelings. I said, really? You would do that? Said, yeah, let's see what happens. Wow. And she did. And now, and now we've been together like 45 years. Or Incredible. Something. I don't know what it's Wonderful. Been. Yeah. <laughs> and she's the secret ingredient. She did everything. All I did was write. She took care of everything else. Uh, all the shopping, all the cooking. She would... She monitored my coffee consumption and brought a fresh cup every time I needed one, you know, wow. without me even asking. It was unbelievable. She's like a, a champ beyond belief. And so I would just roll out of bed and land next to the typewriter and go. And, <laughs> you know, once a week, uh, we would go to Marvel for me to deliver all the stuff I'd done. And then we go to bookstores and a restaurant and then a movie theater. And that was our one, you know, and everything else was me just working and her taking care of me. Wow, that's that's great. What a great story. I, I'm thrilled to hear that it's it worked out so well and that you were such a good team together. That's a very special thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't have done nearly as much if I'd had to take care of myself, you know. Right, yeah. Tell me about Paul Glacey and uh, how you worked with him. Did, was there much communication between you and him while you were working on the title? Oh, yeah, yeah we talked on the phone all the time. Um, how'd that start? Well, I went in, I, I wandered into Marv Wolfman's office one day. Marv had uh, been an editor at Warren at Creepy Eerie and Vampirella. That's how we got to know each other before he moved to Marvel. He says he's or he doesn't say, neither one says, but I got the impression that Marv is the one who suggested me to Roy Thomas when Roy said, oh, we're going to start this whole line of black and white things and we need a lot more writing, right? Right. And I assumed that Marv suggested me because he'd been my editor on the creepy, eerie stuff. I did, an, I just did a long interview, oh, it was a couple of years ago now, for uh, Roy's magazine, Alter Ego, right? And I said that in the interview, and he sent me an email saying, well, I always thought it was my idea to call you, not Marv's, but if that's the, maybe I'm wrong. So now I don't know who, like, <laughs> okay. I thought it was Marv because he was editing the stuff. Roy thought it was him just reading the stuff in the Warren mags. I don't know. 
but anyway, um, so I was already acquainted with Marv, and he was the one I sort of hung around with the most because I already knew him. So I went into his office, and there's this stack of artwork uh, on a side table. He was, I guess, in charge of talent scouting uh, prospective artists, right? Uh, or at least he was the first guy to go through the stuff and pull out what he thought was worthy of for further scrutiny and give it to Roy or whoever. And so I, I always used to go through the, the stacks of artwork and see if there was anything exciting. And I came across this stuff pretty crudely drawn, but I loved the storytelling because the storytelling was my favorite kind of storytelling, which is the kind of Jim Steranko, Will Eisner storytelling, right? Okay. Uh, Bernie Krigstein at EC Comics did it a little bit, too. Um, I also loved the very straightforward storytelling of Karl Barks and Milton Kniff, but I like the gimmicky Will Eisner Steranko kind of thing. When you say that, are you talking about um, the the way like their panel layouts and the way they? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. I call I call it sequential storytelling, and a good way to describe it is it's the kind of storytelling where you could figure out roughly what's going on without the words. Okay. You can, you know, it tells, it tells the story in a sequence of pictures and sometimes you don't need words at all, at least for brief periods of time. And to me, that's the best kind of uh, visual storytelling, comic book storytelling. Um, Later on, I couldn't understand when the most popular comic artists, you know, guys like Jim Lee and and uh, Todd McFarlane and so on, are very, very, very good artists, no doubt about it. But uh, our Rob, what was that guy's name? Rob something. Liefeld. A- anyway, yeah, Rob Liefeld. I would look at their stuff and I said, oh, okay, I could see why uh, they're popular. It, they have this very dynamic way of drawing the the superhero figure and so on. But this is like, this is terrible storytelling. I can't even tell where, whatever is happening here. First of all, I can't tell what's happening. Second of all, I can't tell where it's happening. Hmm. Am I indoors or outside? I don't know. It's just like, <laughs> right. it's like, it's like pinup shots, you know, one after another. And, but that became briefly the, the hot style. Um, but it's, my favorite is the kind where you don't need any words to tell you what's going on or where you are. And so I saw this and I thought, wow, I, oh man, I got to write a story for this guy. You got to use this guy, Marv. We got to, we got to hire him to do some, uh, an actual story for Marvel, you know, some black and white story. I'll do it for him. Tryout story, whatever. Marv just looks at me. I, you know, I'm gushing over this with the enthusiasm, blah, blah, blah. He lets me go for five or ten minutes, and then he finally says, uh, I've already sent him a script. Uh. And I go, ah, oh. <laughs> uh, well, I wanted to be, and he said, well, go home and write one for him. It'll be his second one, you know. So I, I did. It was uh, called Bats, and it was uh, a silent story. It had, uh, it had a couple of words like signs, but no other words in it whatsoever except the title. And it wasn't very long. It was like five or six pages. But anyway, the artist was, ta-da, Paul Galassi. Right. And, and his very crude drawing style improved really quickly. I mean, you know, you could, 
you could tell that this guy really had genuine talent and he just needed practice and the practice would just doing pages, you know, and every page he got better and better and better. I mean, he reached a plateau, of course, as everyone does. But uh, yeah, I, I always felt like uh, me and Galassi were a synergy a fancy word meaning greater than the sum of its individual parts. Right. Like, uh, this is more than me and Galassi. This is me and Galassi, which is a whole third thing or a fourth thing or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, better than just my words combined with his pictures. It's It becomes uh, inseparable because I think we we sort of understood each other, you know, we were on the same wavelength, however you want to describe it. Right. Now I've worked, you know, I've had great partnerships with other artists, um, but none where, who seemed so sympathetic and in tune. Um, so yeah, we, and I used to write specifically for that kind of storytelling style. And I would say most of the time, he, he just stubbornly didn't do it, but <laughs> okay. then he would do that. But then he would do that storytelling style in a different sequence three pages later, right? Where I hadn't done it, just to you know show show that I couldn't boss him totally, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's like, uh, uh, all right, we we were. We were like an old married couple. We had arguments all the time, but ended up loving each other when it was done. That's fantastic. Is there a standout issue that you can recall, um, or a story at least, that, uh, that, you, that you and Galassi, kind of the well, combo, um, really, really shows your style? Well, there are, well, there's a lot of them, but I guess uh, a few that stand out... Um, well, I like the three-part Velcro one. That was the one where, remember I said I decided to deliberately change the the whole style of the series yes. from this pacifist getting attacked to, you know, this sort of espionage kind of thing. That's where it started with that three-part Velcro story. And then it was followed by uh, the Mordillo thing with the goofy little robot who was based on Bob's Big Boy Burgers mascot. Right. I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> yeah. Brynaki, that little goofy robot. I told him, make make a robot like Bob's Big Boy mascot, you know, and he knew exactly what I meant. Did it just, just right. So we wouldn't get sued, but it had that kind of goofy feel to it. <laughs> and uh, so those stand out. And then he came to New York and he stayed uh, in, in our apartment. And uh, I took him out to the movies, and as luck would have it, it, it was uh, the Yakuza. Great movie. And we came out of, uh, the, at the end of the movie, we came out onto the streets of Manhattan, both pumped up, you know, like, wow, that was a really cool movie. Um, Japanese rather than Chinese, but maybe there's some way this can inspire something in Master of Kung Fu. And the only thing we ended up stealing was uh, the tattoos. And that's when we created uh, Cat that night over, uh, I guess, coffee and pie or something. Maybe oh, okay. it was a full dinner. And uh, it, I don't know, maybe a little bit of the sensibility of the honor of the, <clears throat> the Yakuza, you know, samurai code kind of thing. Uh, transferred into a Chinese character, Shen Kui the cat. 
Um, yeah, that that two-parter stands out. And, you know, there there are a whole bunch of other ones, but I guess those are the ones. The Velcro, Mordillo, Cat. And then, of course, the big Fu Manchu thing. What was that? Six or eight parts, whatever. Right. And that's all kind of in one era, uh, pretty close to the beginning. Yeah, well... Well, the the Fu Manchu big deal, that was the end of the Galaxy run. Right, yeah. So this is all contained somewhere between, like, issues 30 to 50 or so, right? Yeah, yeah. 50, I think, was his last one. Yeah. Yeah, you were just you were just asking about standout issues with Paul Glacey, right? Right, yeah. I mean, there were a lot of... I loved a lot of what Mike Zeck did, and I loved a lot of what Gene Day did, and... Uh, I thought I was really uh, blessed or lucked out with three really good artists in a row, you know, all very different, and yet they all worked for Master of Kung Fu in different ways. Right, yeah. I, w- I would say the Glacy stuff is probably the best, but not because of me. I think I was better later on the uh, Mike Zek and Gene Day stuff. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, and I'm not saying Paul Galassi is a better artist than Mike Zek or Gene Day, but the two of us together, that synergy thing yeah. just worked so well, I thought, even though my actual writing may have been better for Gene Day than anyone else. You also wrote for the Hands of Kung Fu uh, magazine, the black and white magazine, right? Oh, my God. Why do you yeah, say that? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, okay, you agreed to do Master of Kung Fu, and then John Verporten comes in. He's in charge of trafficking, scheduling. Yep. And he says, uh, well, okay, you're doing uh, the Shang-Chi stuff, and it'll be too much of a pain in the neck to have someone else do the Shang-Chi stuff in the black and white magazine and i'm going like what black and white magazine you know oh well that's coming uh, so you're gonna have to do that too oh really oh and by the way there's gonna be giant size so you're gonna have to do a triple length story every three months <laughs> and there and there's annuals and and uh oh yeah and he's the hottest thing over in britain and they do their marvel reprints on a weekly basis so they're getting ahead of us because they you know they do like half an issue every week so it's like double what we're doing right you do one a month and they do the equivalent of two a month which is fine for spider-man and fantastic four because we got you know 15 years of backlog or whatever but with Master of Kung Fu, they're already running out. And so you got to write ahead on the monthly one. And by the way, try to do it in, you know, uh, half-issue segments so that it's, <laughs> right. oh, Jesus Christ. And, and then and don't forget the giant size one. And then you might as well do the first 38-page black and white story. What? What a nightmare. I had Master of Kung Fu coming out of my ears for yeah. Wow. Quite a while there. <laughs> this is amazing. Now you mentioned uh, the you mentioned the popularity of this title over in Britain. Yeah. Uh, do you know why it was so popular? Is it because the Sax Romer stuff was British? I don't was written know. for the British I, audience, right? Uh, well, uh, Sax Romer was British. Yeah. Yeah. I always had the feeling it appeared in American pulps, but maybe it was reprinted from some British equivalent of pulp, Penny Dreadfuls or something. I don't know. Maybe. Um, yeah, I can't remember. Or maybe they were just, uh, 
published as novels and then reprinted in pulp magazines in America. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, what was the question? The oh, question why was, was the popularity. It, I, don't, I don't know. May, I, it may have been because of Fu Manchu, but I had a feeling it was the Kung Fu craze starting. And, yeah. and, and also, I always had a feeling that, um, that I was more popular in Britain than in America, and that British readers were more inclined to the offbeat stuff rather than the hardcore regular superhero stuff. Right. I don't know if I'm, if I'm exactly right about all this. But yeah, I, I know people like Alan Moore have told me, well, yeah, you were you're a god in England, you know that kind of thing. <laughs> wow. And I was I never felt like a god in America, that's for sure. Hmm. So I I don't know. Uh, I I think that just that it was different from the other Marvel comics uh, appealed more to the British reader. I think. On yeah. the other hand. Master Kung Fu was always a low-selling Marvel book, but it was actually one of the most profitable Marvel books, believe it or not, because, well, we had, uh, John Verporten had the saying, you got to print 10 to sell three, which means you print 10 copies, you send them, you send the 10 to a store, they sell three and send seven back for credit, right? Right, right. So your average sale is 30% of whatever you print. Wow. Master Kung Fu had a very low print run, which is why it sold so few copies. But it sold out in most stores. Okay. It was like it's 100% sales. And they kept saying, we should probably increase the print run. And, I, and I'd say, well, you know how many fan letters I get saying, well, my store here in Colorado, I have to drive 30 miles to to buy my comics. And I don't know how many issues a master comes. I don't get there on the day it comes out. I'm out of luck. And I, I get letters like that from all over the country. You know, they may get uh, 10 copies of Spider-Man and two of Master of Kung Fu. And they may sell five Spider-Man or four Spider-Man, but they they sell all two of the Master of Kung Fu. You know, it's a hundred percent profit there. And uh, Jim Shooter, who uh, ended up hating me, and I hated him with a passion beyond belief. <laughs> he got on an elevator when one of the the marketing guys at Marvel was telling me, you know, Master of Kung Fu is our most profitable book, and, I, and we went through this whole thing, and. Uh, and Shooter butted in and said, uh, he got on the elevator and he, he was listening to this and he butted in and he said, yeah, we should probably print more of Master of Kung Fu. And I said, yeah, we should. And the elevator stopped at his floor and he stepped out and he said, but we won't. I'll make sure of it. <laughs> what? Oh, I man. mean, what an asshole. Holy cow. Unbelievable. And the marketing, the marketing guy just looked at me and you know, he raised his eyebrows and said, shooter. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> I guess I wasn't the only one, you know. <laughs> I don't know why they kept that guy, but yeah. there he was. Well, um, maybe just one more question here for you. Your editor, yeah. um, who was the main editor for you in these early days of, the, of Kung Fu? It was, um, let's see, Marv Wolfman was the main editor, right? For a while, well, and was it Archie well, Goodwin see. too? I I remember, you know, it was Mar, it was uh, Roy Thomas who asked me to do it, right? Yeah, 
and we went through the whole Iron Fist thing. And he was the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics. And then there was nothing but assistant editors, and I was one of them at the time, but that was just like a proofreader, right? They, right. We weren't really editors, and I, at some point, uh, the number of titles being published per month became so great that it's like, we can't have just one editor, you know? And, and Roy actually confessed to me that he, didn't, he wasn't reading the books. He didn't have time to read all the books, <laughs> it, it, you know? Some other writer tried to stab me in the back. They went to Roy and said I was doing a terrible job on Master of Kung Fu and that Roy should take it away from me and give it to him. And Roy is telling me, he said, so I, I was a little suspicious, but I had to investigate. So I took home all the issues of Master of Kung Fu you've done so far. And Jeannie and I read them last night, and we had a ball. We thought, so don't worry about this guy <laughs> trying to stab you in the back. Just keep doing it the way you're But that proved to me that he really wasn't editing anything. He was just hiring what he thought was a good writer yeah. and knew was a good artist. You just had, can tell that at a glance. And left them alone. And if it went bad, he would then just replace them, you know. But he didn't try to micromanage, uh, you know, get in there, change this, do this. And he would just say, no, someone else will work better on this. Maybe you should go do that thing over there. We'll get someone else for this. But at some point, uh, they decided, yeah, uh, there should be actual editors on it. And then they hired, I don't know, three, four five editors, each of whom had eight or ten books to oversee, right? Right. And I guess I guess Marv was one for a while, but he never micromanaged. Archie Goodwin for a while, he never micromanaged. Jerry Conway for a while. They, none of these guys ever really uh, had any any changes or suggestions or anything. Len Wein was the editor for a while. Right. Um, and then I remember towards the end, it was uh, Denny O'Neill. Okay. And, and Ralph Macchio was like his assistant. So, and Ralph was like a huge master Kung Fu fan. Uh, he would call up, but not to get me to change anything, just to have like fanboy conversations <laughs> about nice. how much he loved it, you yeah. know. And are you are you going to do another story with this character or that character? You know that kind of thing. And in fact, he would say, uh, you know, Denny and I talk about this all the time. We don't have to lift a finger. We just sit back and let you make a uh, let you make us look good. You know. And I said, well, are you are you, is that different from the other book? He said, well, not really. But you know, the other ones. Don't make us look as good, whatever that meant. Hmm. And that's, you know, that those were the Halcyon days when I got to do whatever the hell I want. That's why I'm not doing anything anymore, because all these editors think they have to change things and tell you how to do it. And I can't stand that. I can't have anybody looking over my shoulder. I was spoiled by how it was when I started. Right, and that's yeah. the only way I can do it. That would be a so hard So now change. when, when the, they offer me stuff and I go, eh, I don't think so. I, I Do I need the grief? No. And this is after accepting a few things 
where they said, no, 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 I want you to do it exactly the way you did it before. I'm not going to interfere. And it was all a big lie. All they did was interfere. <laughs> oh, no. After they got me to agree to do it, yeah. you know? Right. It's like, oh, now now can we discuss my philosophy of sound effects? And I would go, what? <laughs> you have a philosophy of sound effects? <laughs> I said, look, look, if I put in a sound effect you don't like, you, you're the editor. You got a blue pencil. Just cross it out. I'm not going to discuss philosophies of sound effects. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's funny. And and then there would be a big fight, and and I would say, I I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Oh, that's it's just no, it's no fun anymore. Yep. It was so loose and freewheeling and, you know, boy, it was great. Yeah. And I don't have to do it now. Yeah. Well, that's okay. I don't have to do it now because they're picking all these characters and putting them in movies and shit <laughs> and sending me right. money. So who needs it? Yeah. Shang-Chi's coming up in a feature film. Are you excited about that? Uh, n- no, no. My, you know, the guy I think is the best actor around right now is this guy Tom Hardy. Right. And he played he played my bane. Yeah, you know? that's right. And I and I like the director Christopher Nolan. I like Insomnia and Memento and a few of us. Uh, I haven't watched any of his Batman movies. I have no desire. Yeah. Even though I've, send me the money, you know, <laughs> I'll take the money. <laughs> yeah, <all right. laughs> Uh, I I don't care if it's the comic book version of Bane or the Tom Hardy version. I don't care. I still get a cut. You know that's nice. Yes, fantastic. <laughs> and now I don't. And I don't need this micromanaging bullshit. It's 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 been done. It was done without interference. And now I'm reaping the rewards. And if I want to do anything new, I have to put up with the interference. But I don't have to put up with that's it. So right. I'm not done. Well, I guess that's worked out pretty good for you then, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Doug, um, this has been about an hour, so I don't want to keep you any longer. Uh, when I get around to okay. reading the Mike Zeck and the Gene Day era, uh, I'll probably give you another call and see if you want to chat again. All right. 